0: Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we marvel that you became incarnate. You put on humanity in order to reconcile all things to yourself. You redeemed for yourself a people for your own possession who are zealous to proclaim your lordship. We marvel, Jesus, that you would accept the weight of our sin on your shoulders because of the great Trinitarian love that you, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have for us. And we marvel at the empty grave where the Messiah was vindicated and death was defeated. Because of all this and more, we praise you. We praise you because you have not left us as enemies, but in Christ you have made peace. You have not left us to continue in sin, but you have given us the Spirit to help us leave behind sinful ways that lead to death. And you are conforming us to the image of your Son, who is the perfect representation of you. We praise you because we are free from the great debt that we had to you and to your glory. And we praise you because as we are in Christ, we will be vindicated as well. The grave holds no power over us, just as it could not hold him. Though we are genuinely new, we know that we are not totally new. The old self, dying as it may be, still rears its ugly head in our lives. So we continually confess our need for forgiveness. We ask that all that is earthly in us will die so that we may rise to new life in Christ. Lord, purge from us selfishness, the fear of man, the need to be praised by this world, and any shame that we have of you and your good ways. Forgive us for these and the many other ways that we rebel against your rule. Stop our ears to the enticements of this world. Give us a palate that desires truth and wisdom and being set apart for you. Lord, we pray for the other churches that are seeking to be set apart for you. We pray for the branch and their pastor, Doug Payne, and the other shepherds there. We ask for them in accordance with your will, that you would provide for the needs of the people there physically and spiritually. We ask that they would look to you for provision through sincere prayer and lives of holiness That you would re- and that you would respond as a gracious father who knows what is best for them. Bring comfort to those who need it as only you can. We pray the same for Temple Philadelphia in Burkina and for Pastor Marcel Yanogo. In addition, give them courage as they face violent persecution. Give them a vision of the cross and the empty grave that will enable them to endure in faithfulness to you. We pray that the branch, Temple Philadelphia, and Mission Fellowship would all be captured by the cross and the empty grave so that we will fulfill our mission to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, for ourselves, we ask that we would continue to put off our former ways, ways of disobedience, that we would consider them dead. We ask that we would be content to put on truths and ways that are consistent with your character, even when they are unpopular to the world around us. That is the example set for us by your son, and we know that you were faithful to vindicate him, and you will do the same for us, for the sake of your son. As we turn now to your word, let it guide us and strengthen us so that we can be ready for the battles ahead. Grant us more and more of the resurrection life so that we can walk in its power. In your son's name, amen. Amen.
1: Amen. He is risen. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. It is so good to be with you on this Sunday in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Over roughly 2,000 years, beginning with the apostles, the chosen people of God have met on the first day of the week to remember what the followers of Jesus encountered at the tomb in which he was laid to rest. For when the two women named Mary approached, what they expected to see was a sealed tomb secured by guards who would only allow them access to perform the ceremonial burial rites. But what they experienced was far different. For they encountered an empty tomb and a heavenly messenger who said to them, "'Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen.'" And so from that point forward, the people of God have gathered together on the first day of the week to remember Christ's death on their behalf and even more so to celebrate Christ's victorious resurrection and to celebrate the fact that he reigns as king over all that is perfect and all that his perfect and selfless love has conquered. And this is why we gather, as Seth said earlier, every Sunday. For if this gospel we proclaim is true, It is worth remembering and declaring regularly. Amen? Amen. But in our humanity, this regularity can often cause us to forget the awe-inspiring nature of what occurred on that first Resurrection Sunday. And so, as the early church saw fit to enact a specific feast, on the first Sunday after the full Passover moon, in which we specifically commemorate Christ's resurrection from the dead... For in his resurrection from death, he has become the first of many to be resurrected to new life. And we have begun to see that resurrection even before our physical bodies decay and are no more. For in our hearts, he has poured out his Holy Spirit so that our eyes and ears, our hearts, our minds might be given life over the spiritual death into which we were born. And in that spiritual life we have been given, we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good and that he is now and will forever reign as our Lord and King. Amen? Amen. The word is clear that no man can continually declare this truth with their voice and their life without the Spirit of God first enlivening them in spiritual resurrection. And so on this day, we look forward to the fullness of our physical resurrection and the resurrection of this dead world to its intended glory. But we also celebrate what we have already learned and already received from the book of Colossians, that we have been buried with him in baptism. We have been raised with him <clears throat> through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And we who are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is what we celebrate today. Amen. Amen. And Christ has forever removed the burden of debt that separated us from our creator God. And as we learned this on Good Friday, he did so by giving his own life as a sacrifice, by taking on the cosmic weight of all of our sin. His resurrection three days later proved that his sacrifice was acceptable in the sight of God so that all of our sin is forgiven and remembered no more. Also, we might once again be reconciled and at peace with our creator God. And it is this peace that we declare to the world. Not a fragile peace that is a mere absence of conflict, but a peace that endures in wholeness and friendship and love. And this is what Christ accomplished for us on that Resurrection Sunday. And this is what we are now purposed and intended and commanded to declare. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is a message that mankind in the world has always needed to hear and needs to hear even today, especially today. For everywhere we look, there is violence and hatred and division that is a consequence invited by mankind upon itself by choosing rebellion against the God that provides peace. And so, I had originally intended to take us through Colossians a bit more this morning, but... I pulled an audible at the last second, and because the message that we declare today is one we're all called to share, I thought it would bless us to see the example of our brother in Christ, Peter the Apostle, as he declared this good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And this will help us this morning to not only celebrate and remember the joy of the resurrection, but it will also equip us so that we might be sent to proclaim the same good news to those that surround us. And so if you're not there already, please turn in our text this morning, found in Acts 10, 34 through 48. Now before we read it, let's get our minds in the appropriate context. Recall with me that the Old Testament, especially the Torah or the law of God found in the first five books of the Bible, was a declaration of how the specifically chosen people of God were to be different from the pagan nations that surrounded them. Every part of the law was meant to set them apart. That's what holy means, set them apart as different. And if you will recall, the plan was always to use Israel and their different character like a beacon in the midst of the world calling the surrounding peoples to acknowledge that the God of Abraham is the one true God. Our earlier reading from Psalm 22 in verse 27 is an example. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And it goes on, it says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And notice that L-O-R-D is capitalized. Behind that is the name of the God of Abraham, Yahweh. In the Hebrew text, that's what it would read. And that has always been the plan, that Israel would declare that he is the one true God to the nations. But Israel, through the slow but sure discipline of the Lord, forsook him and were eventually conquered and exiled. And what was once supposed to endear the nations to God through their holiness and wisdom led instead to a self-righteousness and an abandonment of their call to evangelize the people around them. And so at the time of our text, in Acts 10, Israel stood with a hardened heart toward the Gentile world, believing themselves innately special, looking with disdain on the world around them rather than with the eyes of God who had graciously chosen them. And so we come to Acts 10 where Peter had a vision, though, of previously forbidden foods, unkosher animals being let down in a sheet from heaven, and God saying, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, with the attitude of most Jews of the day, pushed back in rebellion because this would be breaking the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that set them apart from pagans. And so in self-righteousness, he says, oh, no, Lord, I would never do that. But God's answer was, what God has made clean, do not call common. In this, God was telling Peter that the boundaries of his chosen and elect people was expanding beyond the Jews to the entire world, including the nations of the Gentiles. And to cement the truth of this vision even further, God's Spirit then called upon a Gentile, specifically an Italian centurion in the Roman army stationed at Caesarea in Israel to inquire of Peter what God was doing. He'd actually become a worshiper of Yahweh through the Jewish community there in Israel, but was always on the outside of the covenant due to being a Gentile. He could never fully worship because he was a Gentile. But now he had been clued in by God in a vision that something new was going on, something very exciting and different that had never happened before. And so he called for Peter. So Peter and his co-laborers went to this man Cornelius and his other Gentile friends, and Peter began to preach. And this is where we join the story today in Acts 10, 34 through 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see is the good news of peace is for all nations. The good news of peace is for all nations. In choosing Abraham and his offspring as his people, God was not showing partiality. The world might declare that he was, but he absolutely was not. His choice, his election, has never been based on the innate worthiness or value of the one being chosen. For all mankind has been given his image to bear and subsequently clouded it through sin. All mankind, the Bible says, is guilty of rebellion against God. His choice, then is simply out of his good grace, out of his benevolent authority. He was clear to tell the Israelites this early on. Take this as an example in Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is his innate character. He is unlike humanity in our predisposition to favoritism and bias based upon our worship of self. God is altogether different. And in this difference, he is perfect, and he is holy, and he is just. And so anyone from anywhere is equally unworthy of his love because of the way we have dismissed it and sullied the very gift of his image that he placed in us. And yet, God is so impartial in his view of us that in spite of our sin, he saves people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So it says, in verse 34 and 35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now we have to be very careful with our cultural and chronological filter with which we hear this. Because in 2023, to us as secularized Americans, it sounds like Peter might be saying, if you act like a good person, a nice person, you get to go to the good place when you die. But that cannot be the case, because to say so would go against all of Scripture, including Peter's own epistles to the church, not to mention the next few lines of his sermon right here in chapter 10, in which he clearly states that it is only through Jesus and Jesus alone that forgiveness of sins is given. What the author of Acts is capturing here is shorthand for the fact that the kingdom of God is now beyond Israel. And God's Holy Spirit has drawn men and women who are not from ethnic Israel into his kingdom and his family. This work of God in drawing Gentiles into his kingdom is evidenced in their fear of Yahweh as the one true God and in the fact that they have become acceptable to him and were doing right or righteous actions. To the Jewish believer, practicing righteousness was not simply being a nice person. It was obedience to the law of God. And this required then a perfect sacrifice that would make them acceptable in the sight of that same God and a pouring out of the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament that would change the hearts of the people affected to be obedient to that same God. And Peter is clear here. God's Spirit had broken free and is actively calling men and women from every nation under heaven. And here God was using Peter and the apostles to declare to these Gentiles what he was doing. The age of God's retaking of the planet had broken through, it had begun, and it still continues today, even as we proclaim this same message to the Gentiles and to the Jews that surround us. And what is that message? Well, the good news of peace is found only in Jesus Christ. This is the message we proclaim. The good news of peace is found only in Jesus Christ. Read again with me just to refresh our memory here, verses 36 through 40. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. God began this invasion of earth within the people whom he had chosen, the nation of Israel. But from their first father, Abraham, they had been looking for one who might provide the ultimate sacrifice that would undo the curse of sin on mankind and reconcile us with our Creator." But in the Jewish mind, they could not grasp that this sacrifice would also be a king, one they called the Messiah or the Christ. Here in the text of Peter's sermon, he is clearly declaring that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was this Messiah, this one anointed by God to be king over Israel. But in reality, God never intended him to be just the king of just the Jews. God intended him to be Lord of all. And so Israel was to be the primary one to declare that it was this Jesus through whom God was reconciling all creation to himself. He alone was the one that would bring true peace to creation. And Jesus did not make these claims without evidence, for God confirmed the message that he proclaimed while on earth through the power of his Holy Spirit. And he did so through very particular means. First it says, It was through the preaching of John the Baptist and John's identification of Jesus as the Christ. Then it was in healing those who were oppressed by the enemy of God, the devil. In so doing, he was showing the authority that his kingdom has over the one that tempts and tempted mankind into rebellion. These actions that Peter lays out in the midst of Christ's powerful preaching about the kingdom over which God reigns, they showed that God indeed was with him in his earthly ministry. But friends, this was not even the most powerful confirmation of his authority and power. The most powerful powerful evidence of all was that he would die as a sacrifice for sin, be resurrected from the grave, and be handed the authority of God the Father to judge all creation. Peter states that the Jews in the country and in Jerusalem put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This was not a literal tree, as you and I might picture it, but it was large stakes or beams of wood made into a cross. The language here that he is using is intended idiomatically to help us understand what took place on the cross. The context is best understood by first knowing the Old Testament usage of this phrase. This is from Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. The one hung on a tree is one guilty of a crime punishable by death and is cursed by God. And the Bible is clear that all mankind deserves this death. The wages of sin and rebellion against our creator is death. And that mankind welcomed that consequence of death by our sin that invited the curse of the fall. But Christ, he was innocent. He was spotless. He was neither guilty nor cursed. We need the help of Paul in order to understand the fullness of what occurred then. This is from Paul's writings to the church at Galatia in chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. He said, There Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. As we heard on Good Friday, Christ bore the weight of all our sin and even the cosmic weight of sin. He became the very curse for us. He embodied our sin and the sin of all creation. He became the perfect scapegoat that died as a substitute in our place and took on the punishment that was ours to bear so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And it is only through God's acceptance of his sacrifice, and his sacrifice alone was worthy because he alone is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. He alone is the one that could die in our place. And because of this, we are seen as righteous in his eyes and welcomed into his family. And this is what Paul means when he says that the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles as we receive the promised spirit through faith. This spirit is the spirit of God who is holy, and he was promised to Israel throughout the prophets as the one who would finally change their hearts and draw them to God in obedience. He was and is the one who ensures God's people no longer live in spiritual blindness and idolatry. But God is so gracious and merciful that his spirit would not just invade Israel and redeem ethnically Jewish men and women, he would invade every nation and draw men and women from every tribe. Unfortunately, Israel as a whole, led by their spiritual and political leaders, did not recognize Jesus as God's anointed king but rather called for his murder. But within Israel, a small remnant of his disciples had been truly converted by the Holy Spirit. And they were those to whom Jesus appeared when three days later, after his burial, he rose from the dead. Friends, this was the greatest evidence of all. For only resurrection could provide the solution for how they saw him in the days following his brutal death. You see, Jesus had been flogged with a Roman whip that was strips of leather with shards of glass and metal in it, meant to rip apart flesh. This flogging alone had opened up the flesh of his back to such an extent that most would never recover. Remember, they did not have the medical interventions that we have today. He was crowned then with a mocking crown made of thorns inches long, piercing into his brow and causing blood to drip down his marred face. And this was after a night in prayer in Gethsemane where he had been showing signs of a deadly malady in which drops of blood mingled with his sweat. Through his trial and mocking, he had been beaten and punched and spat upon. His hands and feet had been pierced through with iron spikes. Blood loss alone would kill him if the suffocation brought on by crucifixion did not. To top it all off, a spear had been plunged into his side and what we now know as evidence of a burst heart came out as blood had separated into plasma and water. As they removed his lifeless body from the cross, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was decidedly dead. There was no possibility of revival. No possibility, that is, in his humanity. But all things are possible with God. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead in power and glory three days later. And then he showed himself to the disciples in such a manner that he could not be confused as a phantom or a vision or a mass hallucination. For he literally ate and drank with them in his resurrected body and appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Indeed, resurrection alone could provide the solution for how they saw him in the days following his brutal death. Friend, if you are here today and you have spent your life pushing aside the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fable or a myth or a conspiracy or something that your family has historically believed, or maybe even as something you won't have to reckon with until you are on your deathbed, please know that God is calling for a response from you today you must decide what to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either he was a con man who fooled the world and we are all wasting our lives in foolishness. Or he was who he said he was. And you will one day stand before him in judgment. The Bible is clear that in life, and especially in the moment of judgment, those who rebel against God will have no peace. But those who are in Christ will hear from their Savior as he invites you into his eternal rest and blessing. And if you are one who thinks that you are unforgivable and that perhaps Christ, God himself, has turned his back on you, realize that the sacrifice that Christ bore on your behalf bore all the weight of sin, even those sins that you think are unforgivable. And he proved that he was more powerful even than the most rebellious action. He is more powerful than any sin that you have ever committed, and he will bring you forgiveness and peace if you simply bow the knee to him in humility. The good news of peace is found only in Jesus Christ. Will you please lay your life in his hands? Will you allow him to break your heart in conviction of your guilt so that it might be converted to one that follows him in truth and obedience and peace. Those that are his, hear his voice, and they follow him. If you would like to know more about what that means, please talk with me or one of the other pastors or the person that brought you here today after the service. We would love to talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus Christ. But for those of us who already have had our hearts converted by Christ and been made his own, Peter's next point is for us. Next, he declares that God's people exist to be witnesses to the good news. Let's read verses 41 through 43 again. It says that God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You might notice that in this section the word witness is used over and over and over. In verse 39, Peter used the name witnesses to describe himself and the rest of the disciples. Before them, though, Peter says that it was the prophets of the Old Testament who were the first witnesses to testify that everyone who would believe in him would have eternal life. In other words, those who would submit to him as God and declare that he is God and they are not. It is they that will receive forgiveness of sins through his name, and that forgiveness only comes through the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Peter and the apostles were not declaring a truth that would get them killed just because they thought it would be fun or funny. No, they witnessed a historical event that was divine and otherworldly. It was something that made them willing to lose their lives on behalf of what they had experienced. This historical event, this occurrence, is what made them willing to lose their lives. They felt compelled to testify as witnesses to the truth of what happened. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was a verifiable provable historical event that they would testify to as true and real. The point of this testimony was that others might, through faith by the Holy Spirit, be drawn into God's kingdom and have fellowship with them and with God himself. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of these apostles was so compelling and their activity so powerful by the Holy Spirit that generations after them have been willing to also be witnesses at the risk of their own lives. Just recently over in the pastor's school that we helped minister in, there were 70 pastors who graduated from the program, 20 of whom could not make the graduation ceremony because they were held back in the north of Burkina by terrorist threat. These men have experienced the Holy Spirit and heard the gospel and are willing to live their lives in a way where they might lose them just as the early apostles did. The very word used to describe these people is martyr, which means witness in Greek. God's people have always been called to be witnesses. Just because we live in the comfort of America in 2023 does not mean that we are not called to the same. In fact, there is not one person that has or is or ever will be saved that has not been tasked with the explicit sole purpose of being Christ's witness. We are all witnesses who give our lives to declare the glory of God through the death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. Some give their lives fully in death. All give it through surrendering daily to the obedience of Christ as Lord and King. All who are his people, like Peter and the apostles, are chosen to be his witnesses. And this has been promised from the beginning as we saw in Psalm 22 earlier. Now, what happened in the cross and resurrection and subsequent pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, this was always the plan. But it was this plan to which Israel had become calloused. For it was not ethnic nor national Israel who is the sole chosen people of God, it is all God's people from every nation, Jew and Gentile. All his people converted at the heart, residing within the church who are God's people. Peter would later make this very clear. As he told the church from all nations into which that they, they had been dispersed this truth, he said, you, and this includes us, dear friends, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Old Testament proclaims, Blessed is the nation who makes the Lord its God. Friends, that is not the United States. That is not any other nation. It is not even the Jewish nation. It is the nation of God's people, the church. That is his chosen people, chosen to be declarers of the gospel truth of Jesus. Brother and sister, on this Easter Sunday, in which you rejoice in the hope of eternal life you have been given through Christ, I want to ask you Does the gospel end with you? Are you the intent of all of the history of redemption? Did Christ endure the cross so that you alone might have peace? Or were you chosen for something far greater? Brother and sister, you were chosen by the creator of the universe so that you might be a witness of the truth of God's work in your life, that you might testify of the truth of his death and his resurrection. Now, you might protest in self-deprecation and say, Pastor, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not equipped to be a missionary, but I want you to realize that this Peter who is preaching in our text today, was an uneducated fisherman who most likely had never preached a sermon in his life before the day the Spirit fell upon him. What was it that Peter relied upon to preach? Was it a great seminary degree? Was it a history of his father and grandparents being preachers themselves? No, it was the same Holy Spirit that you have been given and a testimony which you also have been graciously given. Notice what he says when Peter preaches the same gospel just a few chapters earlier in Acts 5. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. He is empowered to preach what he was witnessed, Peter was empowered to preach what he witnessed and his testimony by the Holy Spirit who was given to any and all of God's true people is the one that empowered him. You have the same, the Holy Spirit and the testimony. And what was it that caused the hearers of this uneducated fisherman to marvel at the truth to which he testified? Well, Acts 4.13 tells us, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They had encountered the risen Christ. Friends, if you are indeed one whom the Holy Spirit has made a Christian, you have all you need to proclaim the good news of peace found through Christ our Lord. You have the Holy Spirit, and you have a testimony of how Christ, through the Spirit, has called you to himself, how he broke And then rebuilt your heart so that you might pursue him in obedience and faith. Imperfect obedience and faith, yes, absolutely. But obedience and faith that could not happen aside from the conversion of the Holy Spirit in your life. You do not need signs and wonders, brothers and sisters, to change the hearts of those to whom you are witness. For Christ was clear. Conversion never happens through signs and wonders. Rather, what we see in our final section is that international praise is the proof of the power of the good news. International praise is the proof of the power of the good news. Let's read the last section, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised Who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, friends, to set the stage of what this point means, we have to realize and take for a moment, a pause, to understand we are so young, our life is but a vapor, and so we have grown up in a world in which Christianity has overtaken it, as if it's nothing. Friends, the gospel started with 12 common men, 11 common men, and it spread across the entire Roman Empire within 100 years, the entire known world. And then to the ends of the earth. And it is not just some religious philosophy. It is based upon a historical event that occurred that a dead man rose again. How odd is that? The Spirit has moved across the world in every tribe, nation, and tongue. Now in response to Peter's testimony, it says that the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. This means that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, had been drawn into the chosen people of God by God. And it was not through spectacular oratory or convincing arguments or programmatic evangelism. No, they had been drawn by God's sovereign work of grasping their hearts through the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was shocking, shocking to the Jews. These Jewish believers that had come with Peter were astonished, For they had grown up hearing the horrible saying that God fueled the fires of hell with Gentiles. But here they stood, seeing something that flew in the face of that hard-heartedness and self-righteousness. How was it that they knew the Holy Spirit had been given to these pagans, these Gentiles? The same way it was shown in Acts chapter 2 during the coming of the Holy Spirit the apostles spoke miraculously in their own language by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember this in Acts 2, 5 through 11? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the apostles speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And what was it that they were hearing, dear friends? The gospel of Jesus Christ. How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own language, the mighty works of God. They heard the gospel. Non-Jews heard the gospel of the God of Abraham. Friends, this was miraculous. This was astonishing. That moment was the pouring out of the Spirit upon the Jews in Judea. A couple chapters later, in chapter 8, something similar happened in Samaria as the Spirit was poured out to the Samaritans. And here in chapter 10, the same evidence of God's mission to the ends of the earth is offered at the pouring out of the Spirit to the Gentiles. This confirmed Jesus has promised to them in Acts 1 that they would be witnesses to Judea, the Jews, to Samaria, the Samaritans, and now to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. These Jewish believers may have wanted to push back because of remnants of self-righteousness against Gentiles, but they could not. For just as the Jewish believers in Acts 2 heard the apostles praising God and extolling, making much of his name in their own languages... Here in our text today, these Jewish believers were now hearing Gentiles do the same thing. The word tongues here is confusing. It's an old English remnant that is stuck in our Bibles. But the word in the Greek simply means a language of a foreign known tongue, a foreign known language. These Jews heard these Gentiles make much of the Jewish God, Yahweh, and his sent Redeemer, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it was because God miraculously allowed them to speak Aramaic or Hebrew, or whether the Jewish believers simply heard it as such, it was was clear that the truth of God, the gospel, had come to the Gentiles. This was confirmation that what God had promised had begun. You see, in multiple passages throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, God was clear that it would be a sign of judgment upon Israel and blessing upon the Gentile world that Gentiles would one day be the ones brought to Israel to tell them the truth of God's gospel. That they would be the one that would praise the God of Abraham. And the evidence of this fact, the prophet said, would be that they would declare God's truth in their own tongue, their own foreign language. Here's an example of Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And so here, back in our text in Acts 10, Peter and Jewish Christians with him had no choice but to declare that God had poured out his Holy Spirit not just on them, but on the Gentiles in front of them as a result of hearing the gospel. And so they rightly declared that they must follow the Lord's work that had already been accomplished. He had baptized them by the Spirit, bringing them into his people, and so Peter now needed to perform the tradition of welcoming them into the people of God through water baptism. The Gentiles' praise of the Hebrew God was proof of the power of the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, friends, again, this is not shocking to us. We think, well, yeah, there's Christians in every nation. But, friends, at this moment, to the Jews, God had to work a miracle for this to occur. And this is not unlike what we do as a church today. Someone comes to our local assembly here in Salem, Oregon. Here's the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ preached. They are converted in their heart by God's sovereign grace and they testify of praise to God in a way that makes much of his name and work in their lives. They extol God in their own tongue, so to speak. And so we then say, who are we to not recognize that God has performed conversion here? They should be formally recognized and drawn into God's people. God has baptized them in the Holy Spirit, so why shouldn't we accept this in obedience and baptize them with water into this fellowship of God's people? And so we baptize them, and we welcome them into our fellowship so that they might participate in Christ's body. The gospel is preached. The hearer is gripped by the praise offered by those who know him. And they are converted in heart as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And so they offer praise in their own life, in their own tongue, so to speak. This was what Paul was declaring when he said this in 1 Corinthians 14, 24-25. If all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, be careful here. The word prophesy, don't get weird with that. The word word prophesy is to simply declare the gospel. It's to declare the word of God before men. And we are all doing that at this very moment. I am speaking, yes, but we perform... Communion and everything that we do here in the ministry of the word and praise, we are prophesying, we are speaking the word of God to those that might be among us. The praise of God's people throughout the world, and even here in little old Salem, Oregon, is proof of the power of the good news. To anyone here that does not follow Christ, the proof of Christ's resurrection is the testimony of his witnesses across time and space, based upon the fact that he rose from the dead. On this day and every Lord's Day, Gentiles from nations across this planet give witness to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. They and we act as witnesses every Sunday. We are witnesses in a long line of witnesses. The prophets were witnesses of what Christ would accomplish long before it ever occurred. This alone is miraculous, that they spoke beforehand what he would do, and it was fulfilled. But then the witnesses of Peter's day saw the risen Christ and were willing to give their lives to declare that his resurrection was a historically verifiable event. And since then, the witnesses of every generation over the last 2,000 years have willingly given their lives to declare Christ as Lord. And lastly, but possibly most powerfully, These witnesses sitting here among you are the proof of the power of the good news. Now you might say, Hans, most religions have converts across the world. It's true. But as I said, they are converts to a religious philosophy at best. Christianity alone makes converts based on a historical event in which a dead man was brought to life again. Friends, it is either the greatest hoax of foolishness ever brought upon mankind, or it happened, and you must reckon with it. And if you want proof in the here and now, talk to these people that surround you, and you will walk away realizing they and I, like Peter, have encountered Jesus by his Holy Spirit. Let them tell you of their testimony of his redemption and resurrection in their lives. Let them tell you how they, like Christ, were dead, but had been made alive. For those who are truly Christ's in this room will each tell you, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was very blind, but now I see. I once was the Lord of my own life, headed to destruction, but God in his graciousness, has delivered me from my sin and has made me his own. And I can now do no other than to declare that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And therefore I have died, and I have risen, and I look forward to the fullness of his reign in my life when he comes again and restores all things to the newness of life that he showed on that first Resurrection Sunday. My brothers and sisters in Christ, do you take this evangelistic task seriously when we gather as a body? Do you leave this place with the command to be witnesses strong in your minds and heart? I pray that this Easter celebration today will not only cement the joy with which we have been given in the resurrection of Christ that brings us the forgiveness of sin, but also that it will remind us of the purpose for which each of us have been saved, to go and make disciples in the name of Jesus by preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, just as Peter did to Cornelius and his Gentile friends. Brothers and sisters, because he rose, you have been forgiven. Because he rose, you are at peace with God. Because he rose, you have been given new life. And because he rose, you have been chosen for a purpose. Live your life in a way that gives praise to the God of Abraham and makes much of the good news of peace through his son, Jesus Christ. This will be proof to those that surround you that the Holy Spirit has moved and is moving still. Let's be a people that go from this place to be his witnesses, witnesses of the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray. Father God, we thank you because without your miraculous movement by your spirit, each of us would be dead in our sin and trespasses blind to the one true God that created us. And we are blind, Lord, because we've created idols in our own image, idols that serve us, but idols that are deaf, blind, dumb, and mute, that can have no action or movement in our lives. And so we know that you are the one true God because through the truth of your word, you have moved. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have changed us. Yes, we are not perfect, and yes, sin still exists in the battle that we fight against every single day, but you have converted our hearts. And so for those of us in this room that are yours, we thank you and praise you that you have called us, you've chosen us, in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, and you have asked us to go and declare this truth of your gospel to the nations. Help us to participate, Lord in this amazing work that you have started, that Peter even kicked off on that day of Pentecost, help us to go and preach to peoples and languages that know nothing of you. And Lord, sometimes those people are not thousands of miles away, but they're next door or sitting in the cubicle or the classroom next to us. Help us to be a people that recognize that we are saved in order to proclaim your gospel. And help us to begin by celebrating the truth of that gospel today. For the more we celebrate it, the more we worship you, the more it will simply pour out of our mouths that you have died, Jesus. You have risen, and you are coming again. We thank you for this truth, this reminder, and this chance to celebrate your resurrection once again, Jesus. Help us now prepare our hearts as we step into communion and as we enact in that communion, the truth of your gospel.